This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 1st, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Judicial activism in defense of liberty is no vice, so says Goldwater Institute litigation director Clint Bullock. He argues that conservative complaints about what may be rightly termed judicial engagement miss the mark when it comes to how courts secure our rights. Bullock is the author of the Cato book, David's Hammer. We spoke in Phoenix, Arizona earlier this week. During the Clinton administration, the one of the popular conservative uh, hammering points, I won't even call them talking points, was this idea of judicial activism, that activist judges are not applying the law, that uh, their only role is to uh, apply the law. And it, 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 I feel like, was meant to tell the judicial branch, you just let Congress handle this, or you let the president handle these things. You need to limit your role when it comes to the rules that govern the United States. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, and it was hopelessly internally inconsistent. Um, You had people like Mark Levin on the one hand saying that uh, laws ought to be uh, deferred to because of popular will unless he happened to not like the law. And probably the paradigm example is one of the most activist decisions in the history of the country, Bush versus Gore. George W. Bush was elected at the behest of the judiciary, and I didn't hear a heck of a lot of conservatives complaining about that. It seems like that talking point has sort of died down, though. It, you know, during the Bush years, it seemed like that was not as as big of a uh, a complaint. I think that it has died down a little bit because one of the th- great things that Barack Obama has done for this country is to inspire Americans to read the Constitution from cover to cover. And in so doing, a lot of Americans are recognizing that the only uh, part of government that is truly capable of protecting our constitutional rights on a consistent basis, if it chooses to do so, is the judiciary. And uh, so they are welcoming an activist, principled judiciary such as the one that we have in the United States Supreme Court right now. Give me an example of where... Uh, a, an activist so-called uh, judge or uh, panel of judges has, has really just locked down a lot of, of things that most Americans hold dear in terms of liberty. Most recently in the area of gun rights. For many, many decades, of course, the Second Amendment was the poor stepchild among our Bill of Rights. You know, due process was enforced, First Amendment was enforced, but not the Second Amendment. And in a pair of recent decisions by the United States Supreme Court, the court ruled that the Second Amendment means what it says and that laws that eviscerate the right to keep and bear arms are unconstitutional. That's an activist principled court. Where did this idea come from? Uh, what was what was at root uh, of the argument about uh, judges going beyond their role? Interestingly, I think the first arguments about judicial activism came from liberals during the 1930s when uh, the New Deal was passing all sorts of new laws and the conservative U.S. Supreme Court was striking them down. And liberals said, hey, you've got to defer to Democratic majorities. Then 
uh, the argument switched sides during the 1960s with the Warren Court. And the Warren Court was not as activist as it was lawless. And there's a, a very important distinction between judicial activism, which is striking down unconstitutional laws, and judicial lawlessness, which is where the courts take on legislative powers, like, for example, uh, mandating the Miranda rights that are being read. That's legislation. That's not uh, that's not judicial action. So uh, conservatives took up the mantle of complaining about judicial activism. And now it's kind of turned uh, course once again with many uh, liberals saying that this court is an activist court. And you know what? They're right. And you know what? Thank goodness. And Ernesto Miranda, that event took place here in Phoenix. Yes, it did. <laughs> now, so uh, when you say that the court went beyond uh, in, for example, the Miranda case, were they specifying actions that local agencies must take in order to comply with uh, something else? I, yes, yes. Basically, courts have the power to strike down laws. Uh, but if you get into, for example, creating a trimester system in the area of abortion or running school systems or prison systems or ordering tax increases, these are all things that courts have done that go beyond the judicial power. And so I think that uh, conservatives or liberals are right to criticize those as uh, going beyond the judicial function. But when a court strikes down an unconstitutional law, that is the type of activism that the framers of our Constitution intended the courts to engage in. In fact, if they don't do it, and an example of that is in the eminent domain area, uh, where the courts simply abdicate their responsibilities, we have tyranny and very few opportunities to overcome it. Just to clarify this distinction then, obviously the framers were very concerned about overweening government. That is, maybe lots of laws that uh, are... Uh, either hard for people to understand or are so broad as to be meaningless. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, judges should be involved in. That is, that is identifying and eliminating those kinds of laws. That's right. If you read the Federalist Number 78, which is probably the, the greatest uh, exposition of the proper role of the judiciary, the framers understood that the natural impulse of the executive and legislative branches were, would be to go beyond their constitutional boundaries. And that only the judiciary, with lifetime tenure and immunity from political pressures, would be able to hold the other two branches to the limits of their constitutional powers. At the federal level right now, there is a big concern among libertarians, many conservatives, and many liberals that uh, overcriminalization is, is a serious issue. Harvey Silverglate, who's a a scholar at the Cato Institute, says that if you are a business person, it is impossible for you to avoid committing, by his reckoning, three felonies a day. And uh, if that's Pretty the case, depressing. <laughs> if that's the case, then that would seem to call for more judicial activism, properly understood. That is absolutely right. And the court took a big step in that direction this year in a case called Boyd versus United States. And it was a case involving a lady who, uh, who took criminal action against her husband's lover. And she was prosecuted under state law. And then the federal uh, authorities decided to 
prosecute her under a federal under, under an international weapons chemical weapons treaty. This is a woman who had poisoned yes. the mailbox and other surfaces that That's she exactly thought that this woman right. was going to touch, and she was clearly trying to commit murder, if not uh, some sort of assault, serious harm. Some exactly. serious harm, but. This is a, and so the feds decided to federalize this truly local crime, and the U.S. Supreme Court, in a uh, unanimous decision, held that she has a right under the Tenth Amendment, which reserves powers not delegated to the federal government to the states. She had a right to challenge that law under the Tenth Amendment. That's Act One in what I think is going to be a very interesting uh, battle against over federal criminalization of, uh, of laws. How does that play out? In, in your idealized world, you see that this, this decision and Boyd, uh, you know, what might be step two or step three in terms of trying to uh, use this, this decision and I guess an individual Tenth Amendment right in some sense? Right. Uh, that is to be able to assert uh, against the federal government, a federalism claim as an individual, that you have some sort of standing? It might be in the environmental crimes area where uh, a local activity is um, a form of, of nuisance and can be prosecuted under state law, and yet there's been a second federal law that has been adopted to police the exact same activity. And so an individual prosecuted under the federal law could assert under the Tenth Amendment that this is a classic exercise of state police power and the feds should not intrude into that. So this could could uh, be used as, as, a, as a tool down the road to, to rein in the federal police power as, more largely? Absolutely. And, I, you know, I don't think enough Americans realize how good our U.S. Supreme Court is right now in terms of moving us toward a system that was intended by the framers of limited federal powers. Clint Bolick is the director of litigation at the Goldwater Institute. We spoke earlier this week in Phoenix, Arizona. He is the author of the Cato book, David's Hammer. You can get your copy at Cato.org.